following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Have you ever picked up the phone and even before you really know what the person on the other end of the line is talking about, you recognize the urgent importance of the nature of the call? You can hear it in their tone of voice, even in their initial greeting. They say um, something like, hey, do you have a minute? Or perhaps, can you talk right now? Or the more foreboding, um, are you sitting down? Because I need to tell you something. Well, the words don't really communicate a whole lot to us. If you just think about the words themselves, if you've read them on a page, they might, you might even just brush over them. But the tone of the voice, it captures something. It captures your attention. You begin to listen intently. Uh, I remember when I got the call that my dad had died. I'll never forget it. I remember exactly where I was. It was the intersection of Chestnut and 69th Street in Upper Darby, a block away from my church. I was picking up some people to go to Westminster Seminary for an address by our pastor emeritus who had just published a book, fittingly, on your state of mind, uh, setting your mind on things above. And uh, I'll never forget what was said, but the thing that really impressed me was the frenzied and hysterical voice of the caller on the other end of the line. Even before really anything meaningful got out on the line, I knew exactly what had happened. And I'll never forget my emotional response. I was a weepy mess for that 45-minute drive all the way to Glenside, Pennsylvania. So much so that the people in the car said, do we need to turn around? I said, no, no, I'll get you there. It's probably good I go to this talk. And I got there. And I had to go back home. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get through it. Um, and when I called Jocelyn, and when I called my dad's closest sister, and then when I called my little sister, and then when I called my brothers, and when I finally got a hold of my mom later that night, I keenly remember each and every person's response. <laughs> you can see how much I remember that. The words spoken by each person, they express sadness in some cases, shock, express sympathy to me. They knew I was very close to my dad. And then... In the one case, which I can never describe without crying, and I even practiced last night to try to get through it for today, but in the one case, indelibly seared into my memory, my younger brother's mix of disbelief and regret. And, you know, the words were very meaningful, but the tone of voice in each of them, I mean, it just hit me in the heart. It really affected me. And we were emotional beings, aren't we? Um, the tone of voice in each conversation impressed me much more than the words, I'd say, even. And when we consider this morning the spiritual discipline of fasting, something that seems so remote from us, so distant, perhaps even irrelevant in our lives, um, when we consider how fasting intensifies your prayers, we're taking up the matter of tone, the matter of manner, of communion with God in prayer, more so than the content or uh, matter of our words themselves when we pray. To put a finer point to this, if prayer as such primarily concerns the words we say to God, 
the praises and petitions we bring before the throne of grace and our underlying heart motivation behind those words, then fasting, our subject today, primarily concerns the tone or manner of spiritual posture we assume as we come before the throne of grace from our hearts. Christ has just concluded teaching his disciples on the heart motivation of prayer and how it is they're supposed to pray. And now he addresses religious fasting as that third practice of devotion in this chapter in Matthew 6, but a a practice that's particularly tied in with prayer. Uh, You don't fast without prayer. You can pray without fasting, but you never fast uh, apart from uh, seeking to intensify and affect your prayers. So his goal in his teaching on fasting is like his goal in his directions for giving in the first uh, opening verses of chapter 6 and then praying in the Lord's Prayer right at the heart of his Sermon on the Mount. Um, His goal is to unmask the hypocrisy which leads to spiritual rot and rottenness and then to promote true kingdom of heaven living from the heart which leads to spiritual fruitfulness in the disciples' lives and in our lives as believers. His teaching in our passage this morning relates directly to his charter for kingdom blessedness in chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, in that here Christ teaches his disciples, he teaches us what it means to mourn over our sin and what it means to hunger and to thirst after righteousness in such a way that you will be blessed of God and that you will be satisfied even in your fasting that you will be made glad in the morning after morning. Uh, By way of a vivid contrast, then, Jesus Christ teaches us here in verses 16 through 18 that fasting is a means of grace if and only if presented for the notice of your heavenly Father who graciously rewards his children. Fasting is a means of grace if and only if presented for the notice of your heavenly Father who graciously rewards his children. What this teaching addresses is the issue we're going to tackle under the second heading of the morning sermon, and that is how to fast fruitfully before the Father. It's very practical in nature. But before we can get there, we do need to consider fasting as a means of grace. For surely fasting is a means of God's grace to us. If Christ clearly assumes that his disciples are going to be doing it and, by extension, that we will be doing it as Christians and as his followers. And so heading one is fasting as a means of grace. And then heading two is how to fast fruitfully before the Father. So we'll dive into that first heading now, fasting as a means of grace. Uh, Just the the very first opening clause of verse 16, whenever you fast. You could even translate it as when you fast. This is a language of taking for granted that uh, something is going to be done at appropriate times. Jesus assumes that fasting will be done in his kingdom. For fasting is a means of grace. He assumes that fasting is a means of grace because God's word approves fasting as a means of grace. Uh, Christ assumes that his disciples are going to maintain regular practices of fasting in prayer because Christ knows the value of religious fasting as a means of grace. By means of fasting and prayer, Christians go without physical food and drink for a time to taste the goodness and sweetness of God. Fasting and prayer are like golden channels through which the treasure of heaven, 
the grace of God in Christ Jesus, for that's all the treasure in heaven, is communicated to us. It's a golden means through which the gold of heaven is showered upon us. In other words, fasting is a means of grace when it intensifies and furthers our prayers. There are a lot of reasons to fast. I'm not condemning fasting for dietary reasons or medical reasons. Doctors order fasts for us before procedures. There's some benefit, health benefit, to intermittent fasting or going without certain foods for a time to cleanse your system. All of that's well and good, but that's not religious fasting. That's not the fasting we're talking about today. The fasting we're talking about today is a means of divine grace, spiritual good to us in a way that medical and dietary fasting really can't be. And the neglect or abuse of religious fasting will saddle us with a self-imposed handicap on our Christian lives. If you neglect fasting or if you abuse it, you will, and I hope to convince you of this if you're not convinced of it already, you will be handicapped in your Christian life. As a believer, just like if you neglect the the public means of grace in corporate worship, if you neglect to retreat into the prayer closet and pray, if you neglect to do these things which Christ gives his people to do for their good, well, then you're just handicapping yourself as a Christian. And fasting is one of those things. It's given for our growth in grace and godliness to the glory of God. Christ's assumption that his disciples are going to maintain regular practices of fasting in prayer, confronts us with this question, what about us? What about us? Where does fasting factor into our congregational life here at Antioch? Uh, I was convicted this week. I was looking back at the past two years, and though Dr. Piper and I have been uh, involved in fasts at the seminary, and many of you who are students have been, I don't think we've called a fast here at Antioch. We didn't do it uh, leading up to my ordination service, which is a great occasion to do it uh, when a man's being raised up by God for ministry. We haven't done it in response to uh, different trials we've faced or, or you know, in the, the evangelistic witness that we've had. Uh, this is not something that we've really incorporated into the congregational life of the church or even something that we've promoted to you all as individuals to consider. Um, when was the last time that you even thought about fasting? I couldn't remember the last time I had really thought about fasting before this week when I sat down to begin uh, my sermon, other than when I was dividing up Matthew's gospel into, sermon, into a sermon series. And when was the last time you practiced a fast? I mean, really, earnestly, intentionally devoted your time to fasting and prayer. And that's a convicting question for each of us, trust me. But this text raises another question. The answer to which may cause us uh, to gain an appreciation for fasting as a means of grace, or even to grow in our desire to employ it in our lives. And that is, why does Christ assume that his disciples will fast as a spiritual exercise? Why does he assume that fasting is a means of grace? In short, because fasting, as we shall see from a brief uh, study of the Old Testament and New Testament, cultivates in the heart of a Christian believer a deeper sense of his humiliation before God's holy throne of judgment and grace. It cultivates in us humility 
which is the chief mark of a Christian. As I've said before, John Gresham Machen, uh, old Presbyterian minister from 100 years ago, said Christianity is the religion of the what? Not the arrogant, not the proud, not the smart, not the rich, but of the brokenhearted, the humble of heart. And fasting cultivates that humility in us. It, get, it helps us to, to achieve a heightened sense of dependence upon the Spirit in our lives. That little bit of hunger in our stomachs, that, that bit of need that we have physically will uh, interact with our spirits and, and, and promote holiness and humility. It gives us as well a more fervent love in our hearts for God our Heavenly Father who graciously honors sincere devotion expressed in true fasting according to our text. For Jesus says, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you graciously. So in both public uh, gatherings of Christians and in private or family devotion, uh, we're given fasting as a means of grace. Interestingly, in verse 16, when he says, whenever you fast, Jesus is saying, when y'all fast, when you all fast, implying that this is something they do together. And then in verse 17, he switches, but you individually, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, all singular pronouns. So it's given to us as a cross-contextual means of grace, both uh, for our corporate lives and also for our individual devotion. Because God's word approves fasting as a means of grace. And that's why Jesus assumes it. See, in God's word in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, we're given both precept, that is direct instructions, commands to fast and humble ourselves before God, and we're given approved examples of fasting as a righteous practice in the lives of the saints. It's commanded by God's word, and it's modeled in God's word. We know that God has appointed fasting as an act of worship and devotion, as a positive duty of the second commandment, which is all about how we worship the Lord our God. Ordinarily, fasting itself, as I've mentioned, is abstinence from food, drink, and other earthly comforts and entertainment for one day, even just uh, from, from dawn to dusk to intensify, to further the ministry of prayer as individuals, as families, and as churches. Fasting, or religious fasting, I should say, disciplines the body for a spiritual benefit. It does not destroy the body for the sake of spiritual benefit. It's a discipline, not a destruction. If you have some kind of medical condition where a one-day fast would severely uh, harm you physically, then this is not for you to do. The Lord has already humbled you physically. In a sense, certain sense, you don't really need that fasting. Um, if you're young or pregnant, this is not something necessarily for you to do. But for those who are able-bodied, fasting is very useful to us. Uh, we do not break the sixth commandment on our way to fulfill the duties of the second commandment. We are not to tear down or desecrate or dishonor the temple of God, which he's given us. And so when Paul refers to the destruction of the flesh for spiritual benefit in 1 Corinthians 5.5, it's a very particular context. He says, I have decided to deliver such a one that is an unrepentant sinner in the midst of the assembly to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's not talking about destroying the man's literal body. He's rather talking about mortifying the sinful flesh. Put him out of the assembly that the Spirit might have his work in his life, humbling him, mortifying his sinful flesh, so that he might then be restored to the people of God and found righteous on the day of judgment. 
But even there, can we see that dynamic of discipline leading to spiritual benefit? Church discipline with the hope of restoration of an erring sinner. As I said, fasting is approved in Scripture to promote humility, to encourage true repentance from sin among God's people, to also to awaken us in our prayers, to give us watchfulness and a heightened wakefulness in prayer, to keep us focused and alert on particular occasions. And William Perkins, the great Puritan theologian of the 16th century into the 17th century, he gives us seven occasions that Scripture shows when it's appropriate to fast. I'm going to go through them very quickly. I'm not going to get bogged down in these. First, when we fall into any grievous sin ourselves. Um, we see this in a key event during the judgeship of Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel 7. The people of God had been engaging in idolatry. Uh, they recognize they are now under judgment, and Samuel does what? He calls a fast. And right after that, we have the summary statement of Samuel's good judgeship in the land. That was a highlight of Samuel's practice as judge. And then in Leviticus 16, the, the word of God gives to the old covenant people of God an annual fast on their calendar, but specifically in connection to the sin offering for the atonement of sins. So what is that fast supposed to do? It says it in the text in Leviticus 16, to humble the people as they contemplate the weight and the seriousness of their sin and the need for blood atonement. So the first one, when we fall into any grievous sin, that's when it's appropriate to fast in prayer. It's appropriate to fast when those among us fall into sin. Uh, Paul rebukes the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 for uh, treating very lightly the sin of somebody in their midst, a very grievous sin. And he says specifically to them, uh, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And that word for mourning it suggests fasting. You should have been fasting. Instead, you've just become arrogant. You've been talking about his sin, perhaps uh, condemning it outwardly. But what have you really done as a people of God to seek the Lord in this? So when those among us fall into sin, we should fast. When God's judgment is upon us, in Judges chapter 20, during the civil war in Israel, uh, when Benjamin had done something, the tribe of Benjamin had done something horrid, and the rest of the tribes came against them. They had round after round, battle after battle, of just tearing each other up. Right in the middle of it, the people of Israel, the, 11, the other 11 tribes, gathered together and proclaimed a fast among them over the situation because they recognize God's judgment upon them. When God's judgment is upon others, so not only when they fall into sin, but when you see the hand of judgment, when you see affliction upon others, that's when it's appropriate to call a fast. David does that in 2 Samuel 12, uh, when he's considering how God's judgment is being visited upon his child born out of the adulterous union between him and Bathsheba, and he fasts and prays to God for that child's life. And though that child dies, David can say at the end of that period, he go, where he goes, I am going also. He knows God has heard him in his humble prayer. And David also in Psalm 35 actually declares in that psalm that he fasts for his enemies. He fasts when God's judgment is even upon those who are opposed to the things of God. Very interesting. 
We also fast when God's judgments are imminent. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat gets a report that his enemies in the surrounding nations are planning an invasion. They're coming. And God's judgment, this, this great difficulty, is imminent. And what does he do? He proclaims a fast in 2 Chronicles 20 verse 2. We also, sixthly, uh, fast when we need God's blessing, especially pertaining to individual salvation or assurance of salvation. Uh, the NASB uh, does not translate it this way, but in Acts chapter 10, uh, verse 20, or verse 30, I'm sorry, uh, Cornelius, the Roman soldier, uh, says, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, a man who gave him directions to seek after the gospel, to seek for salvation. And this righteous uh, heathen then was turned and saved, having been heard in his humiliation. He who had uh, been a devotee, I, should, I shouldn't say he was a heathen, he was a proselyte. He had uh, converted to Judaism, and he's seeking for the way of salvation, longing for the Messiah. And so he fasts and prays, he's heard of God, and he's then assured of his salvation in Christ. He's granted direction. And then finally, uh, and this perhaps most pertinently for our corporate body as, as a church, this is something that probably if we, if we do incorporate this regularly, uh, this is when we would do it. When we seek God's blessing upon the church's ministry and the extension of the kingdom. In Acts 13, uh, verses 1 to 3, we read, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and uh, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So you see how these... Uh, these early Christians gathered together, these early Christian leaders at, at the launching pad of, of Paul's missionary journeys. They, they frequently set out from Antioch. That in, the, in that place, they fasted and prayed for direction. And then once they had received direction, they fasted and prayed for the success of the ministry of the gospel. So those are the seven occasions of fasting and prayer. It's not likely to be something that we do with great frequency. It is altogether wrong to set a mandatory time, uh, you know, Every second Sunday in February, or every second Saturday in February, we fast, or what the Roman Catholics do um, when they practice Lent and they have mandatory partial fasts and these things. Uh, that's not for the new covenant people of God. The only mandatory scheduled fast was that one in Leviticus 16, and that was for the old covenant people of God. All the other fasts are what's called called fasts, not stated fasts. Um, and it's not something you do frequently. But Jesus is teaching his disciples to follow him in living out God's word from the heart. That there are times appropriate for fasting and prayer. As I said at the start, fasting is a means of grace. But if and only if presented for the notice of your heavenly father who graciously rewards his children. So how do you do that? That brings us to the remainder of our passage in the second half of verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18, in which Christ directs us in how to fast fruitfully before the Father. And like I said, after the manner of wisdom teaching, which is what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, he's teaching as a wise uh, king, Christ sets up a contrast between hypocritical fasting and sincere fasting. 
hypocritical religious fasting, and sincere religious fasting for spiritual benefit. So how do we fast fruitfully before the Lord? First, he gives us what not to do, that hypocritical fast, which leads to spiritual rot here in the the second part of verse 16. If you read it with me. Uh, Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Literally, the word order is a little bit different. He says, do not be like the hypocrites, gloomy-faced, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So we're given a command, and then we're given a, a reason for his command. This familiar command is, don't be like the hypocrites. What are they doing this time? We saw them hypocritical in their giving. We saw them hypocritical in their praying. Now we're seeing them hypocritical in their fasting. What's up? It's the same problem. They give, they pray, they fast in order to be seen by men. In the case of fasting, we're told they put on a gloomy face. It's one word in the Greek. Perhaps more literally rendered, they deface their appearances. They mar themselves in an attempt to put on the signs of pious humiliation in order to impress men with their religiosity for some kind of social benefit, not for any spiritual motivation, but in order to get ahead in life, make friends and influence people by fasting. Now, you might be familiar with passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's people humbling themselves by putting on sackcloth and uh, casting up dust and ashes. Indeed, that was a very visible thing that they did. And you might be thinking, you know, that's a pretty gloomy thing to do. Cover yourselves in ash, put on uncomfortable clothes and, and go around. Is that what Christ is telling his disciples to reject here? Are we, are we supposed not to do that? The answer is no. That's not what Christ is telling his disciples. That's not his point. He's not contradicting the approved examples of Old Testament saints. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not to contradict it. Not to throw it out. The description here in verse 16 indicates something much greater uh, than, than outward humility, but rather it's, it's a gross, perverse severity. It's, it's much more severe than sackcloth and ashes. Uh, the image that comes to my mind as I was thinking about this this week, and I know you boys know this. Perhaps you've even done this around uh, Halloween time. But you see Halloween costumes or, or makeup that hyper-realistic that's supposed to look like uh, you're injured. You have a big shiner on your eye. And you're dressed up like a boxer. I did that one time uh, one year. Or maybe uh, that you look zombified. You make your skin all green and you put fake, uh, you put marks on your face to make yourself look like you've been just decaying as a corpse. That's the image that, that comes to my mind as I consider what the hypocrites were doing. They were putting on a mask. Hypocritas, those who wear a mask. Uh, they, they were putting on this makeup. Why? To attract the attention of others to themselves in order to impress others. Fundamentally, the problem here is that hypocrites put on a show of religion. They play church. They have a pretend piety. You all know some people who have done that. Go to church with them. And uh, perhaps in the past, uh, some of us, maybe even our parents or loved ones, and you know, they put on a good show in front of everyone else, but then you get home, it's a completely different story. That's the hypocrite. And that's what Christ is condemning here. And so here's a test question to ask yourself. Why do I talk the Christian talk? Why do I walk the Christian walk? Do I do it for spiritual good and God's glory? Or do I do it 
for social advancement. I was just uh, at this conference I was at, the one teacher on church planting, uh, he and three of his brothers came to Saving Faith in Christ uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s, before their dad did. But their dad was very church-going, and, and they would present the gospel to their dad. And in so many words, their dad's response was this. He's like, listen, religion is a bunch of hooey, but it's good for business. And that was his attitude until the Lord changed his heart. And thankfully, around age of 79 or 80 years old, the Lord did change that man's heart, according to uh, the instructor's testimony as he was uh, sharing with us uh, about you know, just that story from his family. But you know, not all of us are going to live to be 79 or 80 years old, especially you young ones. You might think, hey, nothing can hurt me. I'm going to live forever. There is coming a day that God has appointed when you will face your judge and your maker. And I plead with you now, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Repent now, humble yourself under his mighty hand that you might be raised up on that great day of judgment and not cast away from his presence and his goodness. So the description here in verse 16, it's a severe, grossly perverse putting on of a presentation for others. And the reason why Christ gives for why you should not fast in this perverse and hypocritical manner is that in trying to attract attention to yourself, the benefit you're going to glean uh, from any religious devotion, including fasting, will be temporary, fleeting, and from men, which means ultimately it's going to be dissatisfying. It's going to be worthless. The hypocrite's reward in full in our text leaves them and will leave you, if that's what you're after in coming to church, uh, spiritually empty. You don't need, at, on Judgment Day, your parents' approval or your pastor's approval or anyone else's approval but God's. Christ has better things in store for his disciples than that empty vanity of life. He has in store for them what he is longing to give them, what he's offering to them, even in the Sermon on the Mount, is uh, spiritual good, spiritual fruitfulness. And that's why he then proceeds to tell them in our text what to do whenever they fast. And he gives them this picture in verses 17 and 18 of fruitful fasting before God. Look at verse 17. But you, remember he shifts to the singular here, but you, when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In short, Christ here commands his disciples to present themselves when they, when they fast in private specifically, to present themselves to their heavenly Father in their fasting because it's the attention of their heavenly Father that they need. They don't need the acclaim and acceptance of men. You don't need that. You need your father's attention. You need his acceptance. Uh, when a child cries out in pain, perhaps, or in need from the back uh, here during our fellowship time, and, and you're out here, we all know uh, what it is that, that that little boy or girl is crying out for. Um, they're crying out for their mom or their dad, aren't they? And you know what? When I hear the cry of a small child, particularly in Sunday school, when I'm sitting out here or teaching out here, and you hear one of the little ones make a cry back there, my first instinct is, is that one of mine? <laughs> is that one of my kids? And uh, not that I don't care about the other kids. I care about all of you. But that's just my instinct as a father. Is that one of mine? Uh, who is that? Was that Hannah? Was that Samuel? Was that Seth? And usually, just usually, I can tell. Um, 
God can always tell when his needy children who are mourning for their sin, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, he can always tell uh, when they cry out to him. He can hear us. He does hear us. He promises to hear us when we, who are yearning for the extension of his kingdom, when we fast in humility and prayer seeking for his help, he hears us and he responds always. might not be what we expect in his response, but I can say with all confidence that our Father in heaven hears us when we pray in need. In verse 16, Christ had been addressing his disciples with that y'all. But here in verse 17, he's addressing them singularly. And that's because at this point, he's moving from speaking of fasting generally to speaking of fasting um, individually. There are times, like I said, when perhaps your session will even call for a fast in our congregation, and we're all going to know that each other are fasting, or that at least, you know, there's an intention that we all fast. And that's okay. Jesus is not condemning people knowing that you're fasting. There's nothing wrong with a group of people all committing to fast together in full knowledge that each other are fasting. If that was the case, then most of those examples in the Old Testament would be sinful when, in fact, the Bible presents them as approved. Um, But... When you make a personal commitment to fast on your own, or if you and your husband or wife come together and you say, let's fast over this issue in our family, or if if one of you heads of household go to your children and say, we're going to fast about this, that, or the other thing in our family or our community, and it's not necessarily a part of the whole church doing it together, when you make that personal commitment, um, Jesus is warning us don't then make it a point to let everyone else know. Don't make it evident. And he uses this image of anointing your head with oil and washing your face uh, to express the principle, hide the fact that you're fasting. Don't tell other folks. Um, private devotion here calls for private circumstances. And public devotion calls for public circumstances. And typically, private devotion is in preparation for public devotion. Now, if someone finds out that you're fasting because they say, hey, you want to come over for, for dinner on Thursday? And, and you happen to say, oh, no, I, I can't. I'm, you know, actually, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but uh, I'm, I'm going to be fasting that day. And in prayer, I'll be going out of town. Or you, know, you can always say, I, I'm sorry, I have another obligation, but I'd love to get together for dinner next week or something like that. But if someone finds out It's not that your fast is invalidated or anything like that. That would be an improper way of reading our text. But the point that Jesus makes is do not put on a show of your fasting. When you fast in private, keep it in private. When you fast in public as a people, it's totally fine that everyone knows. Now, the reason Christ gives for why you should fast in this manner, as needy children crying out to their father rather than to their neighbors, is simple. Look at the end of verse 18. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, just as with the open reward for secret prayer and uh, charitable giving earlier in the chapter, this is a gracious reward. It's a gracious reward that God bestows upon his beloved children and not upon their actual deeds. God's not rewarding our fasting as much as he's rewarding us as his children. To illustrate this, I'll draw again from this conference I just went to. It was a great illustration. I'm going to steal it from him. Uh, PCA pastor, I'll even give you his name, Sandy Wilson. He was interim pastor at Grace PCA in Peoria, Illinois most recently. He's pastored in Memphis and in other places. He gives this illustration. He was out 
raking the leaves on a brutally cold day. He said, I was a bit late to get it done. My neighbors probably didn't appreciate it, but I was going to go out there and get it done. And I'm getting these leaves in piles. And then he turns around. He hears the door open and close. He turns around. He sees his son, a little guy, maybe five or six years old, come out all bundled up like a big marshmallow. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And over his shoulder, he has a little rake. He says, hey, Dad. He's got the hat on with the ear flaps. He says, hey, Dad, can I help you out? And uh, Sandy says, yeah, sure, bud. Help me out. And you know, what the, you know what the kid did for the next five minutes until he got, like, too cold? He proceeded to go to each of those six piles, just beat them up with that rake and spread the leaves all over the place. And he says, you know, Dad, I'm pretty tired. It's really cold. I think I'm going to go inside. And Sandy said, that's all right, bud. Go in. Your mom's going to have hot cocoa for you. So he turns around. He starts walking, gets a few steps away. And then he turns back. He comes back. He says, hey, Dad. Yeah, what's up, bud? Can I have a quarter? He asks for a reward. And you know what Sandy did? He bent over. He reached into his pocket. I guess he had some change. And he said, I'm not just going to give you one quarter. You did such a good job, bud. I'm going to give you 50 cents. Pat him on the head and sent him inside. Was, was that father rewarding that son's labor? No, that labor wasn't worth 50 cents. That labor was an inconvenience. It made a mess of everything. And that's typically what our good works tend to do on their own. But he loves his son, and he recognized his son's heart in it, and he rewarded his son. Now, that's not to say that we should be careless in our religious devotion. We're not antinomians. Don't get me wrong. But the point I'm making is when it says in the text that God will reward you, or God, your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you, and sometimes in the open, what it's talking about is he's not rewarding your works. It's not a meritorious thing. He's rewarding his children. That's why Christ is referring to him as your father. That's the, that's the point there in our text. You see, parents, Sunday school teachers, as we look at all these kids that we got at Antioch, and we see all the stuff they do, and they run around, and they move the chairs, and they make a mess or whatever. Um, does any of that, I mean, it might bother us on some level, but does any of that really bother us? Would we rather they weren't here? No, we're glad they're here. Why? Because we delight in them. We love them. No matter what their good works may or may not bring about. And the same is true with the reward God promises for those who fast after the manner taught and modeled by Christ. You know, this relates directly to, the, um, to Christ's fulfilling his mission as the Son. Christ's humiliation, the beginning of it, was his setting aside of his outward glory and deity. Uh, not that he stopped being God. He was fully God. But he set aside the outward show of it in taking to himself human flesh. It was a veil of his glory. And as he took that human nature and dwelt among us, he humiliated himself. It's his humiliation. He humbled himself even to the point of crucifixion. And by way of analogy, the beginning of our humiliation in religious fasting is our setting aside our outward glory, our comfort in having plentiful food and drink, even those signs of wealth and conspicuous consumption and entertainment, the things we enjoy, which for generations of humanity, 99% of people could not enjoy. And God, when he sees us coming before his throne of grace... In that humbled condition, he sees us resembling his son. 
when it's done out of a heart sincerely remade by the Spirit, united to Christ in our effectual calling, he sees his Son and he looks on us with delight and with love and with joy. And when we thus humble ourselves before the throne of God, he takes notice of this profound mystery in each and every one of us who have been remade after the image of Christ. We who were once by nature proud, arrogant, self-centered enemies of his, bent on inflating our sense of self-esteem, self-worth, and self-importance are now in some small but beautiful way before his throne, Christ-like, in Christ, hidden in Christ, humbled to the dust before the Father's throne as his needy and beloved children. And the truly astounding thing here, for the sake of Christ and Christ's sacrificial death on the cross for us and Christ's ultimate expression of his humiliation for the sake of him, God regards us as his children and he hears our prayers and he even rewards us. When we pray in such a condition, when we call on God as humble, needy, even desperate suppliants, filled with mourning over the sin that creeps within us and that surrounds us all around in darkness, God not only hears our words, but he hears our pleading tone. He can hear that tone of our voice. And in some mysterious way, language fails here. I don't believe in patri- uh, passionism or anything like that. God is unchanging. But in some mysterious way, which our language cannot even express, the heart of God is moved to his children. As our heavenly father, he hears our need. And as a good father, he will rush us from distress. But our fasting and prayer, it must be presented to God and done for his notice alone. That's Jesus's point. For fasting is a means of grace, if and only if presented for the notice of your heavenly father who graciously rewards his children. It's not to say that other people cannot know that you're fasting on occasion. I hope I've cleared those decks. But it is to say that you and I, as Christ's disciples, need to consider this. Why do we do what we do? Why do we talk the Christian talk? Why do we walk the Christian walk? Can you say before God and man that you are following Christ in his teaching and in his example because you are keenly aware of your sin, your need, his glory, and your only hope for salvation that is found in Christ? Can you say, I'm doing this because Christ has perfectly and completely and finally secured my salvation? by humbling himself to death on a cross. So now I humble myself, for I follow him. I want to follow him. Is Christ your Savior? If so, if so, do you trust him as the keeper of your soul? Do you know that he taught his disciples and modeled for them and for us this way of Christian wisdom, of Christian blessedness and flourishing in a world marred by sin and seeking to draw us away from God and into its spiritual rot. Included in this way of Christian wisdom and flourishing are the means of grace which we've considered in chapter 6 of Matthew's gospel. Giving, praying, and fasting. Three things, all of which condemned by the world, scorned even by our own sinful flesh. And I would say that the most countercultural, the most radical, the strangest, the weirdest, the oddest, the most foreign, the most spiritually fruitful of these is sincere, wholehearted, Godward fasting in prayer. 
And I've been convicted as I've studied this text and prepared this sermon this week. Because this is something that I've neglected in my own life. And I thank God for godly professors and pastors over the years who have done the super weird thing of calling for fasts in groups that I've been a part of. And you know what? As I've reflected on it, those have been times of special spiritual blessing. But this is all the case only when we do so for the notice of God our Father. If we're doing it to be seen by men, we have our reward now. Fleeting temporal dust, chaff in the wind. But if you want fruitfulness in your fasting, in all of your religious devotion, then do it for God. And do it in his power, according to his word, in Christ's name. There's no power in a fast, but there's great power in the hand of he who hears us when we fast before him in sincerity and in truth. Now let's pray now as we humble ourselves once more before his throne. Our Father in heaven, we do bless you, and we thank you for your word which instructs us. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the richness of your scripture, that we are not left wanting or wondering, what in the world are we supposed to do when we fast? But you make it very clear to us, setting aside earthly comforts for a very limited time according to our weakness in order to intensify our prayers, to come before you in and out of our need, that we might be heard by you who love to bless us and seek to meet our every need. Lord, grant us confidence, not in the flesh, not in our disciplines, not in our rigor of devotion, but grant us confidence in Christ and in the grace of God in him. And teach us and guide us as a good shepherd that we might not stray from your path, but that we might walk in newness of life for his sake and to his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.